0: You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. If you didn't pick up on this, there are some traditional Advent themes, uh, hope Peace, love, joy, and we're not, we're not kind of building things around those, but we're continuing in our series. He is, we are reflecting the attributes of God, and so we're tying those things together. So today I'm talking about God being. Father, thank you for the privilege to sit under your word uh, among your sons and daughters, and may we be built up, reminded of who you are, that you are faithful, even when we are faithless. Would you just wring out the self that, that lingers within our hearts? And would you let us see you for who you are and your greatness? Would you let us trust Jesus and the work that he did on our behalf today? Would you let us be mindful of the grace that we need to trust you all the more? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, 22% of men, 14% of women have reported to have been unfaithful to their spouse, or that's what the Bible calls uh, adultery. Um, Another survey revealed that 70% of of married Americans, my undergrad, and so I I care about where stats come from. So uh, this survey was, uh, I think, uh, of around 5,000 people that said this. 70% 70% of married Americans would cheat on their spouse if they knew they would not get caught. Um yet 90% of Americans believe it morally wrong whatever that means uh to to do so. Surveys especially of this nature are are hardly trustworthy. Um and and if I were considering how these things would be done, you think about people are, are probably not going to lie and say, yes, I've been unfaithful if they had not been. But they would probably be more prone to lie and say, I've not been unfaithful if they had been. And so as we think about that, uh, nonetheless, these, these numbers are revealing uh, and they tell us something about us. I've been to a lot of weddings Right? And, and on many of those I've been on the stage asking husband and wife and, and, and declaring vows to one another and all those things and, and I have never been to a wedding where a husband or a wife vowed something like this I, I am yours you have my heart I love you uh, you are the, the, the one that I'm going to build my life around until you get sick right? I've never heard them say uh, it's, it's me and you together until you lose your job, then I'm out, all right? I've never heard anybody say, uh, man, I, I am yours till death do us part or unless your beauty fades, all right? I've never heard anybody say that. I've never heard anybody say uh, that, that we're in this together until something better comes along. That's never happened. So so what's important to understand as we kind of look at these stats and and, and peer into our hearts, it's, it's what a person is unfaithful to in the context of adultery is, is primarily breaching his or her commitment to someone else. It's, it's a breach of their own words and their own promise and their own vow and their own covenant. And certainly in our context, we would say, well, man, that comes first and foremost from, from not being faithful to God. And, and secondly, it's a breach of trust among the person, your spouse. And we would say, absolutely. But we have to understand that, that in marriage, in the confines of just this one simple thing, marriage is, is unique in that it, it, it spotlights a lifelong commitment to a certain lifestyle, to a certain oneness, to a certain betrothal, to, to, to another human being in good and bad with, with vows of covenant made, usually in modern times on video in front of everyone that you know, and everyone that you love, in front of one another, to one another, in front of God, and our word is our bond. Until it's not. And if both of these things are true, that the vast majority of people would say, yeah, that's, that's morally wrong, whatever that means to, to them, right? Whatever that means to whoever said that. And yet we see that the numbers say, well, one in, in seven or one in five have went against their word as their bond in that, te- in that context. then what is the problem? Why then, do spouses bail for something new or for something different, or, or when things get tough? Well, it's because humanity has a faithfulness problem. Our word is surely not our bond. That's true in in marital fidelity. I mean, I talk to to many of you all who have uh, real jobs, not like mine, right? And I know that that for some of you it's difficult. And for some of you in management, like the thing that you say over and over again, it's just so tough to get somebody just to show up to do their job, right? It's tough for people to show up... uh, for work, it's tough for us to follow through on, on our very own commitments. It's tough for us to see beginnings through until they are endings. We are not good at that. It's, it's tough for us uh, in relation to God to, 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 to follow Jesus as we said that we would, to walk in obedience, to be devoted to Him with our whole hearts for all time. So long as we live on this earth until He takes us home, these things are difficult for us. And all of that sets us up for fear. First, fear of our own unfaithfulness to ourselves, our own unfaithfulness to others, our own unfaithfulness to God. So we say things like, I, I just don't think that I can see this through. And there are people who, uh, in, in light of marriage, they, they, they never get married because, uh, man, I just don't want to be tied down to one person all of my life. They know that they're incapable of walking with someone, one person for the rest of their life. And so, so we say things like, I just can't hang on and I just can't keep going and whatever it is, I can't, I can't, I can't. And, and that fear uh, that, that we have for ourselves, we also fear uh, of others returning the favor. We fear being abandoned and forsaken and lied to and manipulated. Or as Elsa says, fear is what can't be trusted. And when that happens, when we fear, trust becomes difficult to find. And it becomes difficult to lean into. And it becomes difficult to embrace. If you think about the idea of like a trust fall, like you're behind me and, and I'm, I'm uh, trusting you to catch me. and I'm just going to just go, right? If, if you did that uh, many times, but certainly I, I would say one time... <laughs> And you just hit the ground uh, and you wound up in the hospital because you had a you know, concussion, you would probably not do so very quickly in the future. What we do with our hearts in, in this life is, is a series of, of trust falls when we give ourselves, when we give our trust to others, we put ourselves in vulnerable situations and relationships. We commit ourselves to things. We give people our hearts. And gosh, when, we, when they fail us, when they just drop us, then we are, we are fearful that that's going to happen again, and that shapes the way that we, that we interact. See, we are unable to give ourselves fully to another whom we cannot trust. That's just self-preservation. That, that's just sensible living. Why would you do that? I I fell back and you dropped me. I'm not going to fall for that again, right? And so it's difficult for us to walk in in his ways, to reflect his faithfulness. For us to do that, we must give ourselves fully to our good and faithful God. In fact, it is mandatory that we do that. We have no other foundation on which to build apart from from trust in, in him being who he says that he is. The Old Testament frequently uses prostitution as an image of the sin of idolatry. And idolatry is essentially just having anything before God. Having anything as as of more importance than God himself. And so Israel, that's God's people in the Old Testament as he had established a nation with them, they they were pledged to love and to serve God. So so The idolatry of God's people, the the turning from God to other gods, was analogous to marital unfaithfulness to God. And and God's relationship with his people uh, throughout the Old Testament and on into the New Testament is built around covenant. That is, we come together and we say, you are our God and we are uh, your people. And it fleshes out in a bunch of different ways. But that's what the covenant is, and the covenant is built on trust. It's not contractual, sign on the line so that when you mess up, I can take you to court. It's not that. It's built on trust that we have, that we put our lives in God's hand, and we trust that he is capable to, to, to keep up his end of the deal, to love us and to be our God. There's this guy named Hosea. In the Old Testament, he's a prophet. And now, like an Old Testament prophet, if you've not spent much time reading the Old Testament, and, and some of the minor prophets, and, and even the, the larger uh, prophets, they do some crazy stuff to show people like um, God's word to them. And this guy, uh, this guy he, he marries a prostitute to prove the point. Inconsistent and unfaithful living is a plague of, of all people. But it's particularly historic for God's people because of God's perfect, constant, consistent faithfulness. So as we look at He is who God is, we are, and today we're looking at God most faithful, we get to see what it looks like to live in light of His faithfulness. And so by definition, God's faithfulness is, is this. God is firmly constant and consistent in His interaction with humanity. His word is his bond, and everything God has promised will come to pass. To be faithful is, in some sense, to simply be trustworthy and dependable. And and hear me, God is trustworthy. God is dependable. God is faithful. The the big idea is, is this. God's faithfulness is our only hope to remain faithful. So if you have your Bible, open up to Deuteronomy. You've probably been reading there this week, I'm just guessing. Um, Maybe not. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm sorry, that's not right. Yeah, it is right. Deuteronomy chapter 7. The first point is this. God demands tenacious faithfulness. So I want to read the first five verses when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, all those, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourself, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and shall and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down the asherim and burn their carvings with fire. You didn't expect that today, did you? Here's the deal. There's a lot in this. Why would God say this to them? And I want to tease it out in a second, but it's because God knows you and he knows me and he cares for us. That's why he would say that. Why would God say this to his people? Because, because God knows us and he cares for us. So there's, there's much in this. But God is fulfilling his promise to give his people the land he promised. Do you understand when we talk about, oh man, like that is the promised land. It's not the promised land. It's the promised land. It is the good land that God said, I'm going to give to my people. And so, just in normal kind of English rhetoric, we would talk about some great place and whatever it is, and man, it is just a promised land. What that means is it's a good land that God has preserved for God's people through his promise. And what he's saying here is God knows our default tendencies, so he says, devote them to complete destruction. Have no covenant with the people who are there. All right, he says, once I give you what I said I would give you, Have no covenant with the people there. Israel's covenant with God was exclusive. He was their God, and they are his people. God demands this of all that he calls his own. He says, have no covenant with them. Do not give yourself to the God of other nations. Show no mercy to them. These nations that inhabit this land, the land promised by God, the ones that we just read, the the weird names, right, Uh, these nations are being punished for their sin by God. The God of justice is using Israel as its executioner to carry out God's judgment on them. And any mercy shown to those whom God is judging will not only compromise God's judgment, but it will also make Israel vulnerable to follow their ways. See, the purpose of Israel in the Old Testament was to be a lighthouse to the darkness around. So that people would see them, and they would say, what a mighty God they must serve. So, so what happens is, they, they don't do what God asked them to do, repeatedly. They continue to, to intermarry and to, to interact, and they do what God said they would do. They fall into the sin of the people around them. They aren't faithful to obey God, and, the, and they do get drawn away to other gods. Now look, if you don't know the one true God, all right, if you've not spent time in this book, that, that you might think that there are things like this that, like, I can't believe that God would say that. And that might make us feel a little uncomfortable hearing what God says to destroy right but but you might have an only like a soft version of God you might be caught off guard by this but make no mistake God's demand for his own to have no other gods before him is non-negotiable right and his demand is is tenacious for us to be faithful maybe you've heard the saying uh, gazelle-like intensity anybody ever heard that really really so, so if you uh, have been through like Financial Peace University, if you track with Dave Ramsey, and he tells you kind of all the good things to do with your money and all that stuff, right? Um, he, he talks about this, and, and this is what it actually says. Dave Ramsey coined the term "gazelle-like intensity" after reading Proverbs six, four, and five, which says this: "Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids." deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. In other words, when you've, get, when you've gone into debt, and, and this is the context of, of debt, but we'll pull it out even further. When you've gone into debt, you've co-signed on a loan or you're in over your head with money problems, you need to work as hard to get out of debt as a gazelle works to run from a cheetah. That Kind of serious run like your life depends on an action. That, friends, is gazelle intensity. I about animals ever. You're going to see a picture of this. Some, some wily gazelle hopping along with some little horns or whatever and some tenacious cat going after it. And you're always like, uh, you're rooting for the guy to get away, right? Um, and sometimes he does. But if he's on TV, like most of the time he doesn't, all right? And, and so what, what this is saying is we must have a gazelle-like intensity. That's what God is demanding for us. God, God says to his people, once you see what I have done, once I give you uh, what I promise to give you, here's what you need to do. See, God cares about his people. He cares about our faithfulness to him because he cares about us Make no friend with wickedness, he says. Make no covenant, no mercy, no intermarrying, no giving your daughters and sons away. And this is like of huge importance, that this is not a matter of race, this is not a matter of ethnicity, it's, it's none of that, but it's a matter of, of worshiping false gods. And what he's saying is, do not conform your life to one who lives for another king. This is really important. So, so practically... Maybe you're, and you're frustrated by the lack of competent humans and the opposite gender, and you just say, like, what gives? My goodness, right? Um, or maybe you're a teenager, and you're preoccupied with other traits more than whether or not someone serves the same king that you do. You might be fooling yourself, to think, gosh, I, I know they're not serving the same king, and they 're not a part of the same family, but I think if i if I move in with them, or if we begin to have a relationship, I, I think that God might use me to like I, I understand where that comes from right and and there is there is uh, a, a great understanding that we have as missionaries to interact with friends or whatever, but what this is saying is do not. Do not become one with someone who serves a different king. This is not new. Check this out. You might say, well, yeah, but I'm different. Well, let me tell you about, let me tell you about one who was a king, and he's, he's the one that, the, that God himself said he was the, the most wise man ever to walk the face of the earth. Let me tell you about him. He was the son of King David. who's kind of a big deal, right? In 1 Kings 11, this is what we see. Now, King Solomon, he loved many foreign women. That's bad news because he's leading God's people. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, that's really bad news. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, uh, some other ites, all right? Uh, From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, he says this type of thing repeatedly, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely... They will turn away your heart after their gods. You with me? God says, don't do it. If you are mine, be mine. Do not the king. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. Seven is too many. He has 700 Who were princesses and three hundred concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Go figure. Isn't that what God said would happen? For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart. After other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. As was the heart of David his father. Dash the altars of false gods. Leave no room for your heart to be turned to or to turn back to what you once were. What is that all about? It's about God's tenacious desire for you to be his, for you to be faithful. So whether you know it or not, God knows that humans have a faithfulness problem. So he says, dash their altars. And Jesus would go on to say, uh, he says, if your eye... Causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand is your downfall, separate yourself from it. In fact, this is what he says in in context. This is in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And you might be in the room saying, yeah, well, I'm good. I've not done that. Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, we so often think that the the rigid structure of the Old Testament and the laws therein are just obliterated by this soft God of the New Testament who's only love. And look, God is love. And we've been looking at all of these attributes that, that, that make up God and that really reveal his love. The Old Testament said, don't commit adultery. Jesus said, look, if you, if you looked at her and thought something inappropriate, you're an adulterer. So he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If, uh, for it is better that you lose one of your members than than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if, you, uh, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And look, we'll get to gospel transformation in a few minutes. And we will get to our obedience is not a matter of, of pure discipline, but new hearts. And, and it's not external by the law, but it's internal and God making us new and us trusting who he is and not who we are but at the same time, when we minimize this this focal text that we're reading or or these words from Jesus, when we minimize these commands, when we think that, like, all that we're saying is that we can manage our sin. And and I don't think Jesus was commanding people to pluck out eyes. or to cut off limbs. But I think he's telling us how serious it is to to place... In, in Deuteronomy 7, dash their altars, have no covenant with them. And, and I've, I've said this many times over the years, but it, it's my, my favorite. It helps me understand the way that I deal with sin more than anything else. Doc Ock and one of the Spider-Mans, all right? This guy, uh, he's a villain and he's got like eight things coming out of him. Uh, or six and two feet. I, I'm not sure what it is. Maybe he has four, all right? Is it four, Josh? So he has four fake ones and then two legs and, and two arms. Ock, right? Eight, So he makes this nuclear fusion ball. It's like the sun uh, in the spare room out back, right? And, and it's small, and he's like, I got this, and we're going to harness energy. And then he's got these things that he made that he plugged in, and, and they're like, oh, we got this. We're harnessing the sun. But guess what? You can't harness the sun. The idea of fusion is that, Atoms become more powerful and they destroy the atoms around them on repeat until it cannot be controlled. We do the same thing when we play with sin, when we keep it near to us without destroying us. You can't manage your sin. And our two options are to dash it with tenacious intensity, to run, to flee. Like we see Joseph in the Old Testament, when when Potiphar's wife came on to him, he was just gone like a cartoon. Like there was probably like a dust cloud there. And he left his coat and he was just, he just ran. He just ran away. Uh, We get to kill it lest we be killed by it or we will be overcome by it as as Solomon was and as all who have gone before us minus one. But we cannot walk with it. We cannot hold sin's flame near to our hearts without it eventually burning and consuming and destroying. So when God sets you free, remember all this is, remember when, when you get into the promised land, when I give you what I said I would give you, this is what I need you to do. So when God sets us free, live free indeed, not because of sin's faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness. And so we get to do a couple things. There are only two points. Did I tell you that today? It's wild. I know. It's crazy. Tis the season. Um, a, A couple things. One, we get to admit that we have a problem. So if you're here and you're saying, that's not me, watch me. Watch me discipline my way out of sin. I will watch you crash and burn. So we get to, because God is gracious and kind, we get to say, I have a faithfulness problem. And we don't have to caveat, we don't have to couch, we don't have to cushion it. We just get to say, God, I I have a faithfulness problem. And left to myself, I will be drawn away. We get to desire to be faithful. We get to wage war against darkness that is fighting for, for the allegiance of our heart and for our life. And, and we get to reflect on the faithfulness of God. Which, keep in mind, God's faithfulness is our only hope to remain faithful. And this idea of reflecting on the faithfulness of God spills us into the second, uh, the second point. God demonstrates tenacious faithfulness. So let's read, I'm just going to read 6 through 9. For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you, from God's promise to crush the serpent in the third chapter of this book, the beginning of, of uh, sin's work among God, uh, God's people, from his promise to crush the serpent to his promise to establish a people that he would free them from captivity. And as he points to uh, the captivity of Pharaoh in in Egypt, to to his promise to build a nation, to bring a king who would reign forever, to this that we read in Isaiah, 700 plus years before the birth of Jesus, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. All the way through to Galatians 4, when we read that centuries passed. But when the fullness of the time has come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman. And as we read in in the accounts in the beginning of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus come into this world. We see that that He came just as Isaiah promised that He would. God is faithful to His Word and to, to bless those whom He has promised to bless. So so what we get to do is we get to remember who God is, and we we get to remember who we are. I want to read something from two guys. One is called A.W. Tozer, and the other is called C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis. That's cool. Uh, A.W. Tozer says this, and I, I read this to kick off this series, right? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So we get to know who God is. It's super important. But then kind of in contrast, old Clive Staples, C.S. Lewis, says this. He said, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. Now, we learn two things from this. The first one is, is smart people go by their middle, uh, first and middle initials, and then last name. Or at least it gives the appearance that they're smart. I, I would be like M.A. Graham, if you guys want to start that. <laughs> and then the, the second thing is that, that uh, Alan, I figure you would ask, um, <laughs> Uh, double L-E-N. I figured, also figured you would ask. Um, so, so we learned that. And the second thing is how God thinks of us and how we think of him, both are of great importance. How, how he thinks of us and, and how we think of him are, are incredibly valuable. Because the first, how God thinks of us, it shapes our eternal life. And, and the second shapes how we live in relation to God on this earth how we think of Him. It shapes how we live. So if we know that the default condition of our hearts is inconsistent and unfaithful, that we are drawn and enticed by desires within and by darkness around us, even being inconsistent to our own good desires, and if we know that God is incapable of unfaithfulness, He has never... Nor can he ever demonstrate infidelity to any degree. But the rising sun to be and to do as he is and as he declares, if that's true, then it anchors our hope. Hope to know that our hope and and our promise to be his people, it isn't reflective of who we are. But it is reflective of who he is. And that is good news. He will do what he set out to do. Because he is who he says he is. So when we read things like this in Second 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless. Which we are. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And the way that he does this ultimately is, is the definitive promised land that he gives, not only to Israel in, in a, a, a real land structure that we see unfold throughout history, but to all who call upon the name of the Lord. The beauty of God's faithfulness uh, and his redemptive Promises and his prophecies are that they unfold in many layers, right? Prophecy, as we see these promises come through God's people of, of old and, and even in the New Testament, things yet to be unfolded. Uh, prophecy is not just foretelling. It is not just telling the future, but it's, it's also forthtelling, telling, telling us truth about God and about his people in the moments. But, but when we look ahead to, to these things that, that are yet to be, Uh, theologians talk about prophecy in in like a mountain range. And this helps us be better students of the Bible. So when we see things in the Old Testament, and you're thinking, like, when did that happen? And and we have like cross-references, and you can just search really quickly, looking for God's promises to show up. But they didn't know when they would show up. And so theologians talk about this like a mountain range. And they say, there's a mountain here, and there's a mountain here. And these are things that that God promises are going to happen. And and as you look at them, you say, wow, they look like they're pretty close together. Like, one happened, and when's the next thing happening? But if we were able to kind of go to the side by way of helicopter or drone, right? we, We go to the side and we look at that, and then we see that those mountains are like miles apart. And so when we think about that as we read God's promises... They don't know that, and there are promises yet to, to unfold that we see in God's Word. When are those things going to happen? I, I don't know, but we know that, that God is going to see His promises through. That is, uh, that is sure, and that is good news, right? Uh, so, so, so not every Old Testament word points us directly to the redemption of Jesus, but as these things unfold, we get to read things like this text that we're reading today, and, and we get to kind of overlay the New Testament as like a decoder ring that, that we can see how God's promises come to be. And, and one of the, the critical things about this is that Jesus came as he said that he would come. And he became the, the, uh, the son of a virgin. That's a rare thing. And he became a suffering servant king, just as he said that he would. So, so when we read this at, at home, if you're reading through this, it would be so easy just to, to skim past it. Or, or if you're walking through life and you're being discipled by or, or meeting up with somebody up, or in a gathering just like this, we get to adjust our gaze to, to both near what's going on to Israel when God is saying this stuff. And we get to zoom out and we get to see what it tells us about God's character. And what does this tell us about God's plan? And what does this tell us about God and his people? And we see that God sets his people apart because this is what it says. He sets his people apart and he chooses his people, but, but not like in gym class. Not because you want to win, right? That's not what he does. He treasures them. His own are distinct and distinguished from those who are not his own. And he sets his love on his own, not because they're a big deal. This is what this says. Not because you're mighty and great. Not because you have bigger muscles or money or intellect or power or any of those He said that he would love. He loves because he loves. And he has redeemed his people from the house of slavery now we look at this in context, near we see the Exodus. We see that God brought his people out of Pharaoh's captivity. And look, the first Sunday in January, we're going to start walking through the book of Exodus together. So start swimming in those seas, all right? Uh, but, But we see that in context, but we also see that that is pointing us To to God's, as we zoom out to to his salvation, he will crush sin's grip through the life and death and resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, and the fact that he will return for us, which is our hope for freedom from unfaithfulness. Right? Know that the Lord is faithful and that he keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him to a thousand generations. In Christ, we see faithfulness on full display. We see his faithfulness even to death, death on a cross, and we see the death of unfaithfulness, and we see our lives empowered for devotion by the living God. That's left of things to say to you. So just let you know I'm processing what to do at this point. Without assurance, without trust, which flows from a demonstration of stability and faithfulness. Without those things, there cannot be any intimacy. We cannot give ourselves away. If God's faithfulness is based on our ability to to keep our promise and not His ability to to keep His promise, then we are sunk. My friend uh, Andy... Lawrence, Andy, and Luann. They, Andy's preached here years ago. They pastor a church in Frankfort, Kentucky. They adopted a child, um, Safira Jane, um, from Haiti years ago, three years ago maybe. She was like 18 months old. I think she's like four or five now. Um, so they went to, uh, went to the orphanage and they spent like five days there. And They would go there and they would try to talk to her and she would run away and she wanted nothing to do with them, right? And they would, they would talk to her, and they would hold her and, and try to whatever, and, and she would continually run from them to the nanny, right? And fast forward four days after giving her their consistent visit, presence, gifts, affection, all those things, holding her dearly. By the fourth day when they got there, she ran to them. And you can imagine how that probably made them feel a little better about what they were getting ready to get themselves into. Um, She came running to them because she trusted them. If our trust of God is to be determined, we, we can't receive what we run from him. We can't crawl into his lap. We can't cast our cares upon him. We can't be free to trust his interest in us, his love for us, that he will save us and that he will bring us home. Like we fall into an orphan mentality which trusts no one. But child, God is faithful to love for a thousand generations. God's faithfulness is our only hope to remain faithful. Look, I I had some practical stuff at the end. I'll shoot that stuff out on Realm this week. Maybe we could just pray at this point. We can do all the things that we get to do to remember God's work on our behalf. Uh, We get to respond by taking communion, which is bread and drink. And it reminds us of the body that was broken, the blood that was spilled, We get to respond by taking this if you're in Christ, and if you're not, there's no reason to do that, right? There's no reason to remember and to declare something that you don't believe. And so uh, we are for you. We would love to pray with you. We want to bear your burdens. There's a few over by that red tree. My wife and I will be back by that red tree. There's a prayer bench over there. You can stand up and sing, sit down and pray right where you are. Would you join me in responding to God's word? Father, thank you for your goodness, your provision Thank you that you are faithful even when we are not. Would you show us that you are worthy of trust because you never leave us? Would you let that spur us to to put our trust in you fully? Would you let that shape the way that we live as as faithful uh, humans interacting with one another? and interacting with you, of just discipline, but it's a matter of of knowing the one who is faithful. Would you let us be faithful to you? Would, Would you let us wage war against sin in our life? Would you let us be faithful to those around us by showing up, by being consistent with our words, by letting our actions follow what we say we're going to do? For those that have been unfaithful, and that's all of us, would you remind us who you are? For those of us who have taken vows, would you let us be faithful to those vows? For those of us who walk in unfaithfulness, would you show us that Jesus is faithful to save us, to make us new? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.